Let's cultivate our motivation. Lama Yeshi used to use an expression a lot when we asked him about uh, people that we considered horrible or who did horrible actions. And he used to say, they means well, dear. So we even, that's how we responded even when we asked about Hitler or Stalin or Mao Zedong. They means well, dear. In other words, each person in their own afflictive mind, their own confused mind, think that what they're going to do or what they are doing is something good. And it may be good for them, they think. So it may be just a narrow idea of what is good for them or the people they care about. But often when they do what they think is good, when they mean well, it turns out to be very harmful to themselves and other people. But even when people have the intention, the active intention to do harm, at some level they're still looking for happiness. And they think that their actions are going to bring happiness. So they mean well in that respect, although they're terribly confused and often overpowered by all sorts of negative afflictions. But thinking like this, when we encounter difficulties or difficult people, is very helpful because it reminds us that nobody is evil, nobody is horrible in and of themselves. That is not an inherent quality of sentient beings that they can never be free of. And so that gives us the possibility to open our mind to the fact that they are not going to be, or think, or act, or speak forever in the way that they are doing right now. That what we find disturbing right now is a conditioned event and causes and conditions change. People change. This person has the Buddha nature. And so simply for that reason they're worthy of respect. Even though their actions may not be worthy of respect. The person is 
So it's good to think about that over and over and over again in terms of the people that we have difficulties with on a personal level and in terms of groups or individuals that we find difficult on a societal level, people we don't know, but we read about them in the paper. And that attitude opens the door for us to have compassion for them. And that compassion can act as one of the causes for bodhicitta. The other cause being the aspiration to attain full awakening so that we can bring about what compassion is aspiring for, the alleviation of pain and suffering. So let's generate that bodhicitta intention, aspiration, so that we can make what we're doing together this evening take us in the direction of full awakening. So we've been talking about the auxiliary afflictions according to the Sanskrit tradition as presented in Asangas, the Compendium of Knowledge, where he talks about 20 auxiliary afflictions. And they're divided into different groups according to the major afflictions that they are associated with. Okay, so we talked last time about afflictions derived from anger. So wrath or belligerence, resentment, spite, jealousy, cruelty, or violence. And some of these are pretty awful, and we may not want to admit that we have these mental factors. Now, cruelty? No, I'm not cruel. Okay. Belligerent? No, I'm not belligerent. Okay, maybe when I was a teenager, but not now. Okay. Uh, But it's helpful to remember that even though some of these uh, afflictions may not be prominent in our minds now, the seeds of them are there and put us in the right conditions external conditions, and those mental states will come to mind. Okay, so it's not until we realize emptiness directly that we can begin to <clears throat> cut these from the root. Okay, so it's not, uh, we should not get complacent or haughty thinking that uh, I've overcome that and uh, it's not a problem for me anymore. (coughs) Because remember, there's 84,000 afflictions and we have all 84,000. Sometimes we think we're special and we have 84,000 in one. 
Sometimes we think we're special, and we have 83,999. Okay. Anything to stand out in the crowd, <laughs> to be better than everybody, to be worse than everybody. Okay. So it's just 84,000. But there is a remedy to them. So don't get discouraged by the number. I've never seen a, a full list in one place. Uh, I imagine there is one somewhere. Yeah, maybe somebody, one of you can find it. <laughs> so uh, not every mental state is listed among, you know, either the virtuous or the afflictive ones, but rather uh, these are chosen because they have uh, a more prominent effect on attaining liberation and awakening. Okay. So they're not a, an exhaustive list of mental events. So, you know, people like last time said, well, what about anxiety? What about fear? Yeah. So the, what about worry? You would think that these would be high in here. Uh, well, you know, they're among the 84,000. They aren't listed in here. Now, is it, you know, because they don't play a, a big role in preventing liberation? Uh, or is it that maybe at the time these lists were developed, people did not have so much anxiety? Or maybe they had just as much anxiety, uh, but they put it under one of the other afflictions. Okay. Because I think something like anxiety relates a lot to attachment. Well, you want different things. You're attached to different outcomes. You're expecting different outcomes. And you're nervous about not getting them. So that's anxiety, isn't it? Yeah. You want different things. Or anxiety could also be towards the past. I did this, but then it, it, all, it usually goes towards the future. I did this, but now what's going to happen to me? So anxiety is like what ha about what hasn't happened yet although it could be based on what happened before. Yeah. It's definitely involved with ignorance. There's a lot of self-grasping and anxiety. Yeah, big thought of I. The I is very solid, isn't it? Yeah. I might miss out on this. I might have this suffering. Somebody that's dear to me might not be here. I haven't seen a, a, an affliction that's called story writing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, anxiety, fear, worry, they're all involved in storytelling, aren't they? 
So that might be that inappropriate attention, that mental factor that pops up. Okay, then last time we talked about the afflictions derived from attachment. So miserliness, haughtiness, or um, haughtiness, that one's sometimes translated as complacency, restlessness or agitation, okay? Uh, and then, so those uh, three are, are, you know, derived from attachment. And then there's a bunch of them derived from ignorance. So we talked about concealment, hiding our faults, when somebody with a good intention is trying to help us, such as in posada, or when a friend, you know, kind of gives us some feedback about some behavior that we're not uh, we may be aware of, but we don't want to look at, or we're not even aware of it. And, uh, and we go, oh, no, I, I don't have that problem. I'm not doing that. What makes you think that I'm doing that? Well, yeah, what makes you think? Is that one of your problems, and you're projecting it on me? I don't have that problem. Okay, then there's lethargy or dullness. So the mind becomes, uh, it makes the mind become dull, insensitive. We don't uh, comprehend the object clearly. Okay, so you're sitting here and you're not falling asleep, you're not that far gone. But the mind is flat, okay? And it's like your body's here, and the ear consciousness hears the sounds of the teachings, but uh, the mind is not absorbing it, okay? Or have you ever read a book, and, and you're reading, but you're not taking in at all what's being said? Okay, the mind's lethargic. It's, yeah. Then our old friend, laziness, okay, which either wants to lie around, which is what we usually consider lazy, or that is the busiest of the busy, yeah, doing all sorts of useless samsaric activities, running around, keeping yourself very busy, but what you're running around doing is not stuff that's very useful. So that's called laziness, because we're lazy in the sense of not practicing the Dharma. And then the third kind of laziness is discouragement. This is just the first kind of discouragement. I can't do it. I just don't have what it takes. Second kind of discouragement is this is too difficult. The path is too difficult. And then the third is about the result. This result is too high. Yeah, no way it's attainable. So, you know, I can't do it anyway. It's too hard. The result won't come. So I might as well have a good time while I can. 
and we distract ourselves. Then, so that's how far we got uh, last time. Then lack of faith. So several of these are the lack of this and that. Okay. Um, So the lack of faith. So it could also, because faith is not a very good word uh, to translate the Buddhist meaning of of the word. Um, It is. It can be faith, confidence, trust. You know, it's an attitude that um, sees either the truth in something or the good qualities of something and trusts and has confidence in it. So lack of faith is a mental factor that causing us to have no belief or respect for that which is worthy of confidence Okay, so what's worthy of confidence? Um, karma and its result. Yeah, the law of karma is worth having confidence in. The three jewels are worthy of our confidence and our trust and our respect. Okay, the four truths are worthy of, you know, our faith and confidence in them. So uh, we have no belief and no respect. Also, people who uh, can lead us on the path, people who uh, we can learn from. Yeah, if we compete with those people, then we uh, don't have any respect for them, and we can't learn from them. Okay. So the lack of faith is, is uh, kind of, you know, it sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes can go together with pride and arrogance and things like that. I'm better. Yeah. So I don't respect you. Which could also mean that we're jealous of the other person. So when you look at, at these and try and see them in yourself, you can see clusters. It isn't that we always have one clean, clear, uh, you know, one of the auxiliary afflictions, but we could have one and it triggers another one, which triggers another one, and they kind of move around each other. Because it's true, isn't it? Doesn't lack of faith, isn't it? It can be. It's not always, but it can be related to competition. It can be related to to jealousy, to arrogance, to ignorance. So it's it's interesting to, uh, when we meditate on these, to to look in our own mind and uh, see not only the conditions or the circumstances in which they arise, but also what other afflictions they're related to. And, you know, sometimes they're related to more to ignorance and sometimes maybe more to uh, even doubt. Yeah. 
So all these can, uh, yeah, they're quite a merry-go-round. Okay, then the third number 13 um, is forgetfulness. So this is a mental factor that having caused the apprehension of a virtuous object to be lost induces memory of and distraction to an object of affliction. Okay, so if we look at the Sanskrit word in it, is the word smirti, which is mindfulness. So mindfulness also is related to memory, yeah, to remembering things. So forgetfulness is the opposite of mindfulness, okay, in the sense that mindfulness, you're focusing on a virtuous object, in such a way that your attention does not waver. But in forgetfulness, yeah, there was an apprehension of a virtuous object, but forgetfulness induces loss of memory about it. Okay, so this uh, can be especially when we're trying to develop a concentration or serenity. Yeah, you have your mind focused on, let's say, the image of the Buddha or the deity, whatever it is. And then the next moment, you're thinking about going swimming. And how did I get from, you know, visualizing Chenrezi to going swimming? Well, there was some mental factor that got me off Chenrezi, okay? And another one that is related to having fun and being cool on a hot day and being comfortable, so some kind of attachment or restlessness. And it's hot out now, so we think of the swimming pool. And then that takes you to remembering when you were a kid and you used to go swimming. And then that takes you to remember who taught you how to swim, or it takes you to the time when you jumped in the pool and you didn't know how to swim and you were scared. Or maybe you remember uh, getting doused by a big wave in the ocean. And the memory, you know, and we start going all over the universe. And then, of course, you think, you remember what you wore when you go swimming. Yeah. And then, of course, we think of our friend who's going out to buy a big (laughs) Buy a big (laughs) 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 Yeah. Okay, to buy a big... (laughs) bikini okay yeah and then we remember you know know, I mean you're familiar with this isn't it how the mind just goes from one object to the next object uncontrollably okay so forgetfulness is 
the one that, you know, is the captain of the ship that started, that put us in that direction. Okay, because we have to get our mind off the virtuous object in order to have it swim around the world. <laughs> okay, then number uh, 14 is non-introspective awareness. So we had, you know, introspective awareness is a friend of mindfulness. Mindfulness keeps the mind on the virtuous object. It, uh, introspective awareness monitors the mind to see if it's still on the object. Okay, so non-introspective awareness or the poly how many Pali uh, translators translated as non-clear comprehension, is a mental factor that being an afflictive intelligence, so here we have afflictive, or it could be a corrupt intelligence, either translation is okay. So it's intelligence in the sense that it's speculating about its object, and it's corrupt because it's taking us down the rabbit hole. Okay, so it's an afflictive intelligence that has made no or only a rough analysis and is not fully alert to the conduct of our body, speech, and mind, and thus causes us to become carelessly indifferent. Okay, so there's a lot in this one. It's an afflictive intelligence. And then it's only made a rough analysis of our body, speech, and mind, or no analysis at all, okay? So it could be, you know, you woke up in the morning and you generated your motivation. Today I'm not going to harm anybody. Today I'm going to help others as much as possible. Today I'm going to increase my bodhicitta and my wisdom realizing emptiness. You make that determination. And then... Yeah, instead of watching what our body, speech, and mind are doing during the day, we're, you know, we first of all forget our morning motivation. So that's number 13. And then number 14 is we don't even realize that we've forgotten it. And we're off thinking about a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, does that happen to you frequently? Yeah. (laughs) Strong determination, how I'm going to be. And then, five minutes later, you know, thinking about my tea and, you know, how much honey I'm going to put in my tea and is this the good kind of honey or the not-so-good kind of honey and, uh, you know, on and on and on. And we don't even... Realize how distracted the mind is. So, no analysis. So we're not aware of what our thoughts are. You know, when you drive from one place to the next, you drive from home to work, how many people are aware of what they're thinking as they're driving? Yeah. And usually, I mean, we're thinking a lot. There's a whole story going on in our mind while you drive to work. And and then when you arrive at where you are, it's like, what was I thinking? Except if you get really mad, 
then you'll remember that when you arrive. Or if you have a strong, you know, attachment, you'll remember that when you arrive. But otherwise, we're just kind of ruminating about this and that, and thinking about this and that. You know, there's no monitoring of our body, speech, and mind. So it starts with not monitoring the mind, and then we don't monitor what we're saying, and stuff just comes out of our mouth. And then later we go, ugh, did I really say that? And similarly with what we're doing. You know, we, we come in here, and we're, we're all set. We're going to have a silent lunch, and we have a determination today. We're going to keep silence during lunch. Okay. So we keep verbal silence because we're chewing our food. That's not too difficult when you're eating. Although sometimes you like to talk with your food in your mouth. But then, what do we do? You know, we stomp on the floor, we clank, uh, you know, the, the butter, um, the dish that the butter's in is made of metal, and you have a metal knife, and you're just trying to take some butter out, but you're not aware of the movement of your body and how you're taking you know, cutting a piece of butter, you know, and it's making a racket. Or, you know, all sorts of things just as we go through the day. I mean, this is precisely why uh, you remember when we studied the, um, the, the uh, Shramanera trainings and the etiquette, you know, the booklet for the etiquette. So, you know, what, what, those trainings are designed to do is to increase our introspective awareness and our mindfulness and decrease our forgetfulness and our non-introspective awareness. Okay? And they really relate very much to, to our, our life. And here we're just talking about gross actions that we do. Yeah, so we have we develop it first on our gross actions, you know, the mindfulness and introspective awareness, and then that helps us when then we sit down to meditate, and we use those same two um, mental factors to develop uh, concentration. Then the next uh, general category is afflictions derived from both attachment and ignorance. Okay, so number 15 is pretension. So this is a mental factor. So all of these are mental factors, yeah. That being overly attached to respect or material gain fabricates a particularly excellent quality about ourselves and wishes to make it known to others with the thought to deceive them. Okay. Guess who is an excellent example of this? Yeah? I have the most votes of any president in American history. 
except the guy who beat me in the election. But that, that part of the sentence doesn't happen. I have the most votes of any president in American history. The mall was filled with screaming crowds at my inauguration. People could not find a, a space to stand. I am more popular now than when I was president. Okay? So pretension is very much related to bragging. Okay? Bragging, you know, usually if you brag, there's some small part of it that's true. Yeah. And I mean, some people brag and what they say is true. Yeah. But some people brag and what they brag about is twice the size of what it actually was. Okay. And some people don't have much to brag about, but they make something up. Okay, they fabricate a particularly excellent quality. Yeah, fabricate and then make it known to the world because you're attached to respect, popularity, material gain. You want something from other people and you can't get it by just being normal. You can't get it. I shouldn't say normal. Normal is too vague. You can't get what you need by just being kind. Yeah. But what you want is over the top. And so you, you know, fabricate all these, you, you become the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, and then tell everybody about it with the thought to deceive them. Yeah, now the question comes, do you always know, are you conscious of deceiving them or are you actually believing this? Yeah, that, that's hard to say, okay? This one makes it sound like you're conscious that you're trying to see them. You have the thought to deceive them. But very often, that thought to deceive isn't, isn't manifest in the mind, or we're not aware of it. And we're much more aware of, you know, I really am this wonderful, and the world doesn't appreciate me. So the world doesn't appreciate me. I need to remind the world of how wonderful I am. Because I need more appreciation. Okay, so that's pretension. Then 16 is deceit, sometimes translated as dishonesty. So it, it, it's the first cousin of pretension. Or you could say the, the two are a couple. Okay? So deceit is a mental factor that, again, 
same as pretension, being overly attached to respect or material gain, yeah, wishes to deceive others by hiding our faults or preventing others from knowing our faults. Okay, so pretension fabricated qualities we didn't have because we're attachment we're attached to popularity and praise and offerings and you know getting presents. Deceit, same thing, attached to praise and popularity and presence. Okay. And you wish to deceive others by hiding faults or pre- or preventing people from knowing your faults. Okay. So I am the most fair person in the world. I am the most non-anti-Semitic president. I am the most anti-racist president we've ever had. Okay, so that's this one, deceit. Again, motivated by the same thing as pretension, but hiding our faults. Or preventing others from knowing them. So you have a department of justice, and the guy who's leading it is your friend, and he makes sure that your faults do not get out. Am I exaggerating, or is this a good example? Unfortunately, it's a good example, isn't it? Really, unfortunately. I wish I didn't have to use this as an example. And so you can see that pretension and deceit are very much involved in lying. Yeah, of the non-virtues, you know, these are the ones very supportive. Of lying. So we get the big lie. Okay. Uh, conspiracy theories. Yeah. Some people deliberately make up conspiracy theories. Yeah. Some people, they think that they're being intelligent and discovering what all these hidden meanings and hidden things, messages. Okay, like the, what was it, Chicada? Chicada, that was on Biden's collar, you know, who was delivering him secret messages. You didn't hear about that one? Yeah, that was a big one. They even showed a picture of Biden with a cicada, cicada on his collar, you know. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. This is according to QAnon. Yeah, I don't know about the fly on on Mike's head, though. (laughs) You know whether the fly was giving him a secret message or not. Wi-Fi. Yeah. Wi-Fi. Yeah. So. Yeah, so, you know, some people are very aware that they're lying and making things up. And other people, I think, just have an inflated sense of themselves, you know. 
or they are completely there's no self awareness yeah and uh you know don't understand their own behavior aren't even aware of their own behavior um deceit and concealment seem very similar yeah um concealment yeah you're hiding your faults in a particular situation where somebody is trying to help you and you're denying having that fault okay deceit is you want respect you want popularity you want love and appreciation you want gifts and so to get that then you keep your your faults hidden or you prevent them from coming out so it's in different situations yeah yeah it's interesting you know sometimes you wonder do people are they aware of what they're doing uh, are they not aware of it do they care about what they're doing or saying or do they is it heedlessness that's another one that will come to yeah and so you get all these that are you know you look at a situation and which mental factors are in there yeah that they just don't care about what they're saying and thinking or they care and that's why they're fabricating stories about how wonderful they are and keeping their faults hidden yeah so it's it's interesting you know we can never tell what's going on in somebody else's mind uh but can we even are we aware of our own mind and when we kind of just alter things a little bit yeah and so you know because it's one thing we we talk about communication and communication is it involves saying things in a way that the other person can understand what you're saying yeah so you have to say it in such a way that you know they can accept it and understanding understand it but sometimes does that does doing that mean that we exaggerate that we conceal that we lie yeah so it's a, an interesting thing to to think about because we do want to be tactful we don't want to harm anybody yeah with our speech so we want to be tactful but we also need to be truthful but being truthful doesn't just mean we blurt out what we think the truth is it, without any kind of care about the language we use or the implication of that language yeah we have to think about you know how we're expressing something so to express it truthfully but without exaggeration in a way that somebody can understand without covering up without fabricating yeah 
accurate communication is, is not easy, is it? When you think about it. So easy to kind of twist things. Yeah, I remember one time uh, here at the Abbey, this was many years ago, uh, I knew somebody had done something. I can't even remember what the situation was. Uh, but I said, I asked, you know, did you do this? No. And I knew he was lying. Yeah. Because it, it made him look bad to, to say, yes, I did do this. I can't even remember what it was, you know. But I just remember, oh, he's lying. And then he came later and said, uh, I didn't tell you the truth. And, you know, and I appreciated that. Yeah. But at that, at that time, you know, I think he was conscious that, of, that what he was saying was not true. You know, he wasn't uh, just being careless with his speech. Um, this reminds me of diplomacy and the language that's used. Yeah. And it's very much, it's so ambiguous. Like, am I saying this in order to maintain good relations or am I saying it to man manipulate the other person so yeah. I can get what I want? And it's like, sometimes you really don't know. And I always felt uncomfortable um, being around that kind of language because I, I could sense there was this aspect of manipulation. Yeah involved yeah. and politics. And you work for the State Department, so. Yeah, there's a lot of massaging of language. Yes. And I mean, politics is all about that. So yeah. I think people get so confused. They don't even know what's up, what's down. You know, they say, oh, it sounds good. Okay, maybe it really is like that. Or we'll mm -hmm. make it like that. Yeah. And then, yeah, where are you? You're lost. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, often our hearing is like that. We hear part of the sentence that sounds good and that's the part we remember and then the next the part that doesn't sound so good we don't remember or it's the opposite the part that doesn't sound good, so good we remember and we start to get upset about it and the part where they're explaining what it really means we don't listen to so yeah a lot of uh yeah, speaking and listening are are uh, difficult things to do accurately. Yeah, and we see all the time here misunderstandings, don't we? You know, and then people get mad. But if you just, you know, there's some. I was joking with Venerable Sumpton at lunch today. She and I often remember different things from a discussion, and it's just like. Okay, you know, I mean, it, it happens. We can laugh about it now. So I don't need to get mad at her. I hope she doesn't need to get mad at me. But we just recognize that there's something going on that we often remember different things. So, yeah, what else is new with sentient beings? <laughs> so the difficulty is when we think we have the ownership on what on the facts. Yeah. And the other person is not recognizing that we have that ownership. 
because after all, we are right, aren't we? Um, these last sets of afflictions to uh, remember me of living uh, in a in a state where there was so much control, we had to deceive or we had to pretend uh, um, yeah. to be yeah not um, charged with something. Yeah. And then I remember I knew only one child um, that was of Christ um, uh, was of the faith of Christianity, what was very rare in the GDR in East. Germany, and that was, uh, and they have not necessarily followed the governmental, um, you know, <laughs> restrictions so much. Um, they had their own world, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I felt when I entered their house, um, always kind of a sense of release and friendliness. Um, that the friendliness was the forefront, while in society, everywhere else, I found myself, um, it was more like distant and not trusting. Very mm. much the lack of trust between people mm. because of that. Yeah. And it's very true. If you're in certain societies, you, you know, sometimes to stay alive even or, you know, to, to protect something or protect someone, you have to, like you, I like that, massage the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to live in those kind of governments. Aren't they? Yeah. Where you have to be so aware of what you're saying, what you're doing, have a good excuse for everything. So those were the afflictions derived from both attachment and ignorance. You can see why both of attachment and ignorance were involved there. Then afflictions derived from ignorance, anger, and attachment. Okay. So the first one here is lack of integrity. So you remember when we did the virtuous ones, we talked about integrity? Yeah, so this is the lack of it, okay? Or the not just the lack of it, but the opposite, yeah? is a mental factor that does not avoid destructive actions for, real, for reasons of personal conscious uh, or for the sake of our Dharma practice. It's a supportive condition for all afflictions and the basis for not protecting our precepts. Okay. So this one isn't just carelessness, but it's something that can lead to carelessness. Yeah. So whereas integrity uh, has, a, it's a sense of self-respect, we value our ourself and our own truth. We value our own beliefs. Um, we value our Dharma practice. And so because we value those things, then we avoid certain destructive actions. You know, so it's for reason of ourselves and a sense of self-respect that we avoid destructive actions. Okay, lack of integrity doesn't avoid those destructive actions for reasons of personal consciousness or for the sake of our Dharma practice. And it just does, you know, 
I want to do this. I like it. I'm going to do it. Okay. So it's the supportive condition for all afflictions and the basis for not keeping our precepts. So whereas integrity holds us back from non-virtue, yeah, non-integrity sets us up for it. Okay? And, yeah, so that's why this whole thing of having a very clear ethical standard, having very clear values, and having a strong intention to live according to them, that's why, you know, those qualities are so important. Because without them, then we wind up with this non-integrity. And then, you know, our body, speech, and mind degenerate. We're not trying to, yeah, protect our own values. Anyway, so I think you get what I mean. But a sense of integrity, you know, our own integrity that... You know, I'm a worthwhile person, and what I'm doing is worthwhile. And so I have to make sure that I don't harm others. The set number 18, in consideration for others, it's often uh, paired with non-integrity, okay? Because they both function in the same way in not restraining us from destructive behavior. But the reason why we don't refrain from destructive behavior is different. And the result of it is a little bit different. So in in, uh, integrity, the reason is self-respect. Our own values, principles, yeah, like that. In consideration for others is a mental factor that without taking others or their spiritual traditions into account, does not refrain from destructive behavior. And it causes others to lose faith in us. So it's the attitude that, can, that uh, you know, somebody could say, well, yeah, I'm ordained, but, you know, why do people in- expect me to be perfect? I'm just going to do what I want. And, you know, I feel like going out to the movies and putting on lay clothes and then going out and, you know, uh, hanging out with some friends afterwards. And, you know, what's wrong with this? People expect me to be perfect or something. Okay? So uh, we're not considerate of other people's feelings. We don't realize that our behavior can either increase their faith in the Dharma increase their trust in us, or it could have the opposite effect and decrease their trust in us or their faith in us and make them turn against the Dharma. Okay. So, uh, you know, we've been talking kind of recently, too, about uh, sexual abuse in religious institutions. So people who do this, they're lacking, they have both of these, yeah. They have both the lack of integrity and the inconsideration for others. 
because they don't have respect for their own precepts, for their own dharma practice, and they don't care about how their uh, behavior influences other people. And as a result, you know, many people lose faith, not just in that person, but they lose faith in the dharma. It's really a tragedy when that happens, when people, because of one person's bad behavior, therefore think, well, the path that they're practicing must be garbage. That's kind of an extreme way of looking at things, but many people think that way, you know. And that has happened with the Catholic Church, too. It's like, oh, well, they let their priests, you know, uh, some... Some priests were pedophiles, so all of the priests are pedophiles, and the whole church is full of them. And anyway, their doctrine doesn't do anything good at all except produce people like this. So, you know, people go really overboard in terms of their criticism, but sentient beings do that. And so that's why it's important to have that kind of consideration for others so that we we don't um, cause them, rightly or wrongly, to lose faith in the Dharma and to, uh, yeah, uh, lose faith in us. Um, Derek Chauvin was sentenced today, and if I understood it correctly, he was given an, like an extra 10 years on his sentence because of his abuse of power and trust that people placed in that um, position. That, that wasn't exactly it. The minimum sentence was like 10 years. They, he uh, abused power. He, there were children present, present. There were four circumstances. What were the other two? Um, Hmm? Yeah, cruelty, and uh, there was another one. Anyway, so the prosecution was saying uh, he should have 30 or 40 years because of those four conditions. Yeah, the minimum, you know, was like 10. So the judge gave him... Uh, 22 and a half actually gave him slightly more but then he had a hundred and something days of already being incarcerated so it wound up to be 22 and a half years okay but what you know I've been thinking about that because I I didn't intend to to watch it on but I was on the computer and then it came up and I thought I want to see what happens you know so they had the um, fam some of the family members spoke and the prosecutor spoke and then his defense attorney spoke and then they asked him if he would like to say something and I during this whole oh and his mother spoke during the time when the, the Floyd family spoke and his prosecutor spoke uh, he you know recounting what what they experienced and what he did, his face was just like that, expressionless, often just staring ahead, sometimes his eyes moving back and forth like this, but not showing 
any kind of feeling. You know? And the only feeling he tinge of feeling he showed was when his mother spoke. You can imagine how difficult it was for this whole thing for her. And at that at that time he still had the same deadpan, but sometimes he looked down when his mom was speaking. Then when they asked him if he had would like to say anything, in the same flat voice, he offered his condolences to the Floyd family. That was it. No expression of remorse. Yeah. So if you look, I mean, we could uh, think, we could see a lot of these kind of mental flack factors, or at least the appearance of these, operating in him, okay? The, the sense of integrity, no. The inconsideration of others, you know, because he gave uh, all the whole police force across the country a bad name, and people were general, generalizing about all cops on the basis of the bad behavior of a few people, and he was one big case of them. Yeah. So many people were upset that he uh, did not get 30 or 40 years. They said 22 was not enough. The judge pointed out that he did give more than the minimum of, of 10. Yeah. But, uh, and the judge also said, he said, I'm not trying to make any statements. Uh, my job is simply to apply the law to an individual case. Yeah, so he was not taking into consideration the repercussions from what Derek Chauvin did across the country. You know, that, he, that was not figuring in the sentence. He said, my job is just to apply the law to the facts of this situation. And of course, you know, many people thought he should have gotten much more. And, you know, I was one of those many people. Um, you know, because I wanted him, I thought it it would have been very good if he had made a statement that nobody is above the law, yeah, and that uh, justice needs to be applied equally to people of all races. One of his brothers, Floyd's brothers, uh, when he was speaking, you know, as part of the sentencing, he <laughs> he said it right out, you know. He said, you know, if this had been done by one of us, it would have been an open and shut case right away. And it's true. You know, and even the prosecutor said that. He said, I know people have been ordained for 15 years for, you know, just possessing, um, ordained. <laughs> okay, so there's some virtuous mind in there that's thinking about ordination. Big and precepts, and yeah. So 
some, what was I saying? Some. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I lost my train of thought here. Um, oh, yeah. The prosecutor was saying, I know people who have been in, uh, given a 15-year sentence for nothing more than, uh, you know, a nonviolent possession of drugs. So I, that's why I really would have liked if, you know, they, the judge wanted to make a statement and, you know, also for the benefit of the Justice Department, you know, or the, the whole justice, the court system, yeah, so that it looked like it was being applied fairly and equally to people of both races, you know. Because otherwise, that's true. I mean, somebody, if that had been somebody black, he would have gotten the death sentence. Yeah, they would have found some way for that. So, you don't want somebody to suffer? And I was thinking, you know, if when he had that chance, you know, if he had just gotten up and instead of his dead point, dead thing is, I offer my condolences. Yeah, the, the murderer offers their condolences. Um, if he had said, I don't know what happened to me that day. I don't know what got into me. My behavior was awful. I have so much regret for what I did. And I know how much your family I feel how much your family has suffered, you know, and that this little girl is going is growing up without a daddy now. And if he had just, you know, showed some remorse, everybody would have forgiven him, or almost everybody would have forgiven him. But he didn't show any remorse. Yeah. So it makes you wonder what was operating in his mind. I found it quite sad, you know, obviously somebody who's suffering a great deal. And in prison, he's, he, he'll be in PC in protective custody because other guys, you know, if he's ever alone or in any near anybody else, they will jump him. You know. So quite the whole situation's sad. But so you got a news report together with a little bit of Dharma interpretation. <laughs> yeah. But we can't read his mind, but it would be interesting if he could have this list and look inside, you know, and just ask, ask yourself, what made me keep my knee on his neck even after he was unconscious? What was going through my mind that made me do that? Yeah, so I don't know if non-introspective awareness seems to 
have been quite prominent there. Yeah. Or maybe there was resentment and hatred. We, we, we don't know. We don't know. Okay, so that was number 18. Number 19, heedlessness or negligence. Okay, so this is a mental factor that when we are affected by laziness, wishes to act in an unrestrained manner without cultivating virtue or guarding the mind from object or people that spark afflictions. Okay, so you can see heedlessness. It's affected by laziness. We either want to lie around, we're super busy, we're so discouraged that we don't care about anything or anyone, okay? And we wish to act in an unrestrained manner, okay? So just, I'm going to say and do whatever I feel like, okay? So it's going to be somewhere with lack of integrity and in consideration for others. Those are going to be nearby. Wishes to act in an unrestrained manner without cultivating virtue, like, so no mindfulness of virtue, yeah, and without guarding the mind from objects or people that spark afflictions. So just not caring whether you know, like, what kind of situations am I putting myself in? And who am I around? And how are the people I'm around going to affect me? And will it help me keep my precepts? Or will it, you know, lead me down the slippery slope? So, you know, totally heedless, not caring at all. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, this is the way many people break precepts, and also the way, the way many people wind up in prison. Yeah? Heedless behavior. Yeah? Because you, you, don't, you don't care. You're lazy. You don't feel like trying to do anything good. You just want to have your way. You know, there's a lot of attachment in there, too. You know, I just want to have my way. I just want to be comfortable. I feel so crummy. So you go out and drink, or you take some pills, or you smoke something. And then, you know, you act in an unrestrained manner. You were going to do that anyway, whether you, you know, took drugs or, or, or drank. But they just give you the perfect uh, push to do it. And you don't care that you're around other people who are drunk, who are equally heedless and not caring about, you know, values and actions. So, so we've all been like that, huh? Different times in our life. Yeah. And now we have a lot to purify. But we're very fortunate in recognizing that we have a lot to purify. The, you know, the people who don't 
recognize that they have to purify. That's the real tragedy and the trouble, you know. If you make a mistake and, you, you know, you realize you did something wrong and you want to correct it and you want to change your ways, then that's, that's quite good. When you don't even care. Before I ever took the, the five lay precepts, I had been thinking about living by them and just seeing how it went. Living what? Living by them and just seeing how it went oh. without really taking them. Mm-hmm. And yet I was even putting that off. And I was driving into town with a friend's car and she had a CD and that was playing this song. This is uh, the, Part of the chorus is, I want to do right, but not right now. And I said, and then it was from that day on that I started living by the lay precepts. I said, no, that's not right. (laughs) I don't want to do right, but not right now. So that's what this reminds me of. It's like, I want to apply an antidote, but not right now. (laughs) Now, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, the number 20 is distraction. So that is a mental factor that arising from any of the three poisons, from confusion, attachment, or hostility, is unable to direct the mind towards a constructive object and disperses it to a variety of other objects. Okay, so this one could be Uh, You know, with lethargy, it could be with restlessness. It's related, you know, with anger, with attachment, with many others, okay? So we just, you know, we can't control our mind. (laughs) And instead, unable to direct the mind towards a constructive object and disperses it to a variety of things. This is the wandering mind, okay? And sometimes when our mind wanders, we care about it, and we go, oh, I've, you know, the the introspective awareness monitors, oh, I'm distracted, I've got to renew my mindfulness, and you, you do that. Other times, you're distracted, you don't even notice it. Or other times, it's like, I want to do right, but not right now. It's like, I know I'm distracted, but this is a good distraction, and it's too much energy to try and focus my mind on something good. And I've been working hard all day, and I need to relax. Yeah, yeah we, we know it all. <laughs> all these we know all these. Okay, so questions? So uh, some of these uh, afflictions are described as the opposite of the virtuous mental factor, such as lack of integrity, forgetfulness, and lack of faith, that it's not just the absence. So I'm trying to think through this. So is there a possibility of neither the virtuous nor the afflictive mental factor being present in a uh, relevant situation? For instance, if we begin meditating on a virtuous object, mm-hmm. it seems that either we would stay on the object indicating mindfulness or lose the object indicating forgetfulness. It seems like it, 
there's not a third yeah. possibility. Yeah, you're either on the object or you're off the object. Okay. What are they? Well, anyway. Um, yeah. So that. Um, yeah. I mean, most of these nons or ins or lack ofs, um, they're not just that the virtuous mental factor is missing, but there's active mental conduct going in the opposite direction. Okay. So in consideration for others, yeah, you are actively not considering people's spiritual traditions or the effect of your behavior on them. Yeah. So it's not just some neutral state, but you're actively, I don't care. You know, if I want to insult their religion, I'll insult their religion. Have you ever been called a heathen? I've been called a heathen. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, like, okay, well, what were you trying to prove by calling me a heathen? Yeah, because it, it, it was it was quite intentional, you know, and not care, you know, not caring. I wasn't insulted or offended because I'm used to people who act like that in some situations. But it was like, well, that's interesting. Why? Yeah. I didn't turn around and say, well, actually, you're the heathen here. <laughs> you know, because I tried to have a little bit of consideration for others. You know, like, okay. I like what Michelle Obama says, when they go low, we go high. So, yeah. It was an interesting situation. You want to hear the situation where I got called the heathen? So I was helping um, a young man in in Singapore. He was dying. He had cancer. He was like around 30 years old and has just, you know, gotten a scholarship to go to Tulane University in the U.S. And then he got cancer and he was actively dying. And there were some Christians and I mean, this happens frequently in, in Singapore, who uh, want to convert people, and especially want to convert them when they're sick or they're dying. And so these people would uh, come to his residence, you know, to pay him a visit. And at first, you know, he just tried to be polite, so there was one situation, and, you know, I was going to see him and counsel him and everything. And uh, so there was one situation where I think his sister was taking care of him for something. So these two Christian guys and I were both waiting out in the living room. And so we started chatting, and <laughs> they called me a heathen. No. Oh, you're waiting to speak to them? You know, but you're you're a heathen, and you're teaching him false doctrine. Oh well, thank you very much. 
<laughs> so pleasant to meet you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is quite, it happens very frequently in Singapore. At least, you know, when I first went there, it still keeps happening, yeah. And, you know, it breaks families apart. It causes so much friction in families. Anyway, yeah. So what kind of mental factors are operating when you want to convert somebody on their deathbed in consideration for others? Yeah. From their point of view, they are, they're trying to do something beneficial. So they want to save this person from going somewhere else. <laughs> so yeah. it's a kind of compassion, but misguided, yeah. based on mistaken view. Yeah. But it, it's so misguided that I think you could say it's in consideration for others. Because what happened later with that was he was planning to die at home, and uh, one day I came to see him and nobody was home. And we thought, okay, he said, take me to the hospital because he was. So we found him in one of the hospitals. And uh, I walked into the ward where he was. And he's lying in bed and he's going, don't confuse me. Don't confuse me. Don't confuse me. I knew exactly what was happening because he had told me before that his doctor was a Christian and tried to convert him. And I walked over there and sure enough, his doctor was trying to convert him when he was actively dying. And that, I mean, that's in consideration for others, isn't it? You know? And I looked at the doctor. <laughs> And he left immediately. And then I wrote to um, one of the newspapers in Singapore. And I said, is, I, I explained the situation, and I said, is this considered in Singapore to be appropriate conduct for a physician? Just ask the question, is this appropriate conduct for, for a doctor? And, of course, the newspaper contacted the health department and whatever, and the answer came back, no. Okay, and they printed the answer, but I don't know how much that affected other doctors and nurses and so on, because all over, you know, you talk to people and they're getting pushed to convert. Yeah. So say that pride of superiority is also running in there as well. Mm -hmm. That you yeah. are far above this poor soul's situation and you have to do something because you know better. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like she said, a, a kind of, from their side, compassion, but it's certainly rooted in arrogance, isn't it? Yeah. We have the answer and you don't. So interesting this week when I was meditating on these, trying to, you know, hone in on one of them. But as you said earlier tonight, they come in clusters. Yeah. And so that cluster effect is quite alarming because it's like a magnet. And, you know, you've got one strong one going and these others run in and 
big problems. Yeah. But this is the way that you get to understand how your mind operates when you, you start identifying these things in your mind. You start trying to find them in your mind and then you notice the clusters and you notice how one thing leads to another and how the mind takes things and puts them together in a totally unrealistic fashion that makes no sense you know but that makes sense to that to us at that moment but when we aren't afflicted and we're able to look at it we go why in the world was i thinking that but at that moment it's like so true so obvious <laughs> yeah i don't have uh, pretension and deceit. I'm just, I'm not lying. I am telling the truth for your benefit. And Q is the one who told me. And Q doesn't tell us what to believe. He tells us to think for ourselves. So I went online and I investigated. And I realized that, you know, the 13 here. If you add that, that makes four, and that referred to the four in this thing. And so these four people are doing something, you know, because there's a deep state, and the Democrats uh, have this pedophile ring underneath the pizza parlor. And, uh, you know, the four is because every time they go there, they order four pizzas, so then all their friends know, go downstairs at that time. You know, and you just invent things. And um, there's one man who, you know, he was so inflamed by the idea of people being pedophiles that he drove, I don't know, I can't remember what state he was from, but he drove all the way to D.C., went to the pizza place, because it was a specific pizza place and he went with guns because he was going to stop them from tormenting these kids and he walked in and where's the basement and there's no basement in the building you know because it's a conspiracy theory and totally false but this man you know this man believed it uh, you know, and then you look at the, at these mental factors. You know, it's it's like Lama said: people means well, but their minds are are very afflictive, afflicted, and they can't see clearly. And somebody almost got you know, a few people almost got murdered. So. If someone is dying and someone else is trying to convert them, how do you politely get them to stop without creating disharmony around the person dying? Without harming the person who's dying? Oh. Stop them without creating disharmony around the person dying. Oh, to create. You give them the look. 
Yeah. Or you say, please, please, uh, please leave. Just, you don't have to say much more. Please leave. Huh? You don't need to yell and scream. They, they have some idea that what they're doing isn't kosher. Yeah, I mean, as soon as the doctor left, he was good. Then we, you know, I started talking about how to think, and you know, and he died a few minutes later. Yeah, I mean, he was literally on his deathbed. I said, you know, think of the Buddha and light from the Buddha flowing into you. and Just forget everything else. One of the last things he said, actually, after the doctor lied, left, is he called his sister over and he said, remember, after I die, to give offerings to the monasteries and temples. You know, and Buddhists could do the same thing of try to convert somebody on a deathbed thinking they're being compassionate. Yeah. So whatever faith somebody believes in, encourage them in that so that they have a calm mind. And if you're a Buddhist, you can do your Buddhist practice sitting quietly in the room with them. But you don't do it out loud or, you know, push it on them in any kind of way.